without excuse, part two, Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 23. We looked last week at verse 18 to 20. That's the willful blindness of the unbeliever. He uh, chose to suppress, to deny, ignore the truth. That's the choice he made. He, 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 just, he chose to ignore creation. He ex- chose to ignore his conscience. On a side note on that, I, as I was preparing, if you look back in verse 20, and it said, uh, follow along, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now he's talking about creation. Being understood by things that are made. And I came across that word made, and, uh, or I came across an interesting insight to that. It was so good, I felt like I needed to share it with you. The word is poema. We get our English word poem. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, but being understood by the things that are in a poem. Made. Creation is the poet, one, one author put it this way, and this is beautiful. Creation is the poetry of God. It is an, an artistic masterpiece and should bring all humanity to want to find the art, artist. The, crea- the creation demands a creator to want to find the artist. Instead, men or man has ignored the brushstrokes, suppressed the truth of his mass- merciful design, and silence the voice he painted on our hearts that whispers moral truth and final accountability. Poema. This, when you look around you, this is God's artistry. This is God's poem. It demands that we see who is the artist. That was free. That was good stuff, though. All right, what we're looking at today. That's where we're at today. Uh, we're looking at the wicked beliefs of the unbeliever. Um, and, and we're going to try to answer this question. How does he exhibit his unbelief? So how does the unbeliever, this heathen, this, this individual that we call the wicked, the pagan, how do they, how do they display, how do they demonstrate, how do they exhibit uh, their, their unbelief? We see, first of all, in verse 21 then. They display their unbelief by their reckless, or by their reckless choices. Follow along in verse 21. And this, I'm going to kind of give a little running commentary as we look at verse 21. By their reckless choices. Because although they knew God, now they knew God by creation and conscience, they did not glorify him. What does that mean? Did not glorify God. I'm going to talk about that in a minute did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they were futile. Now, some translations use the word vain, some use the word empty, like an empty drum. Lots of noise, but no content. They were vain, they were empty, but became futile in their thoughts. This has to do with their reasoning, their intellect, which is, again, you... uh, Often when you talk to unbelievers who say, well, you just need that crutch, you need that God thing, and they, and they act like they're intellectually superior to you. Let me, let me just say this. 
If you really want to study and, and, and embrace and immerse your, yourself in Scripture, this is not for the weak of mind. This, this is a mind-bender. And for you to take the time to really study and get to know the Word of God is going to strain and work your head. In their thoughts and in their foolish heart, and their foolish heart was darkened. Foolish, of course, is senseless or nonsense. Their foolish heart was darkened. Their reasoning was messed up, as we'll see. Although they knew God, they possessed a universal knowledge of God, creation, conscience. Or put it another way, even though all men have an awareness of God's existence, they choose not to glorify him. Give me, let me give you two illustrations. First one, David Livingston. He's a famous missionary to Africa. He reported nearly 200 years ago that he found primitive tribes who were completely out of touch with each other, as well as with basic civilization. Yet, or I'm sorry, and, and they, know, they possess no knowledge of Scripture, but yet they had a consciousness about sin. And almost without exception, they all had some kind of a stack of sticks, stack of rocks, a mud hut, whatever, that they worshipped. And they, they had no touch with basic civilization or no contact with Scripture. But yet, a basic part of man, he's got to worship something. Charles Darwin, say an example from Charles Darwin, yeah, listen to this. He took his famous trip in the Beagle, he returned to England saying that he had indeed found a tribe of savages on the island of Terra del Fuego who had no religion whatsoever, no concept of morality of God. He used that tribe to prove his thesis that man is just another animal. But the believers in England immediately formed a mission society to go and reach that tribe on the island. They sent missionaries who, after learning the language and customs, discovered that the people had religious ideas, concepts, and practices that had somehow all missed the eyes of Darwin. They still had a concept of God. They still had a concept of right and wrong and sin. It's, it's inherently written by the brush strokes of God across each man's heart. There is a God. There is right and there is wrong. Mankind is incurably religious. If nothing else, as we find out in verse 23, he will worship himself, if nothing else. So, by his reckless choices, verse 21a, indifference. They refused to glorify God. They glorified him not as God. Their indifference. Now, remember, we're talking about the heathen, not us. Unfortunately, as, as we go through this, you realize paganism, heathenism, has come into the church. And, and we, we are influenced by it. And we can point out there and wag our finger and nod our head at those bad heathen out there. But we miss the point of how much of this heathenism have we allowed to come into our own practice. Of indifference, for instance. 
They refuse to glorify God. We talked about this, by the way, uh, in our core gathering or in our, our gathering on Wednesday night, a little bit about this, this aspect of the glory or glorify God. The root word is doxa. We get our English word doxology, which is praise. Orthodox, which means correct. Orthodox doctrine, we have correct doctrine. Or even paradox. Now, some think that paradox has to do with a couple of doctors that married each other. That's not a paradox. Okay? A paradox is something that's in conflict or something that's contrary. Now, if a couple of doctors did marry each other, there might be some conflict. But that's not what a paradox is. It has to do with contrary or conflict. But doxa, glory, or glorify, means to show respect, to honor, to praise, to admire, to worship. They failed to glorify God. They refused to. They refused to show him respect, to honor him, to praise him, to admire him, and to worship him. Which, now we're going to step back. The coach is going to step away from the bench. He's going to look at the referee and say, time out. I just want to take a time out because I think, I think, I came across this and I think it, 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 it's an old word, I'll again age myself, this behooves us to take a time out and just look at what does it mean for us to glorify God? Again, we wag our finger and shake our head, but what does it mean for us to honor him, to admire him, to respect him, to worship him? Let me suggest several different ways. The believer can glorify God by and I have several. By acknowledging Christ as your Lord, or if you want to put it another way, by acknowledging Christ as your master. Now listen to the verse, Philippians 2.11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glorify God, the Father. That everyone would, would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Listen, who's your master? Who do you bow down to? Who do you worship? You want to glorify God? You recognize the fact that Jesus Christ is your new master. He is your Lord. He's in charge. Second, by admitting your sin. That actually brings glory to God. Do you realize that? Joshua chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. Joshua said to Achan, uh, let me give you a little background story here. Achan, uh, they defeated Jericho and they were commanded not to take anything out of Jericho. They were totally to burn up everything. Nothing was to be spared. Well, Achan, when they conquered Jericho, he came away with some special cloth and, and a, I think it was a gold wedge. And he hid it in his tent. And they went up to the next battle of Ai, and they were defeated. And the people kind of threw up their hands like, why, God, you, you did this to us. Why did you allow us to be defeated? And, and basically God said, well, there's sin in the camp. Well, who, what sin? Well, they cast lots, and it came down to between Joshua and Achan. And, of course, Achan was the one that was guilty. So Joshua came to Achan and said, 
My son, I implore you, give glory to, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now that what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Your confession of sin actually brings glory to God. You are honoring him. You are worshiping him. You are respecting him. You are admiring him by confession of your sin. Because you realize you're a sinner and you need to get it off your your heart and mind. How can you bring glory to God by acknowledging Christ as your master? By admitting or confessing your sin. Trusting him with your life. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Paul is speaking of Abraham's trust in following the will of God for his life when he writes, With respect to the promise of God, he did not, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and be fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform by trusting him with your life. How can you glorify God? How can you worship him? How can you admire him? How can you honor him? How can you glorify him? By trusting him with your life. I had told you this story. This is a famous quote by one of my friends, Harold Hall. He said, you either can trust God or you can play church. By praying for his will to be done. And that's pretty hard sometimes because if anything, I want my will, I'm not sure, sure, I want his will. By praying for his will to be done, John chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. By praying for his will to be done, that the Father may be glorified, that the Father may be honored, admired, worshipped, glorified. I'm not done yet. And there's more that I'm giving you. That's the, it's just incredible when you get into you talk about how to glorify God. Serving the church family, 1 Peter chapter 4. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. That's the together part we've been talking about. In gospel and life together, that's serving one another. That's part of it. Serving one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves as to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. You may have thought that when you were changing diapers, greeting visitors, setting up chairs, directing children's games, that you were simply helping to fill a need. Instead, you were bringing glory to God. You were expressing your right opinion of God. You were worshiping him even as you carried out sometimes considered to be a meaning, meaningless, menial task by serving the church family. By living a morally pure life, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, flee immorality. 
I was, I was, that always makes me smile because I always think it says in the, I can't remember the, the scripture talks about, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, if you resist the devil, he'll actually flee from you. But when it comes to immorality, you're supposed to flee immorality. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. By living a morally pure life. We pray about God, surround my life with that hedge of protection of holiness. Protect me from evil, from evil people, evil things, the evil one. But often we neglect the internal. There may be an internal holiness, a moral purity. That glorifies God. Not just actions, but your thought life, your activities that you're involved in. Do they glorify God? A morally pure life. Bearing spiritual fruit. John chapter 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. Every time you have an opportunity to witness, you're glorifying God. Every time that, wit- that witness bears fruit and you have the, uh, in, the privilege or you're at least planting seed, or you may have the privilege to lead them to Christ, you're glorifying God by bearing, by bearing spiritual fruit. My Father is glorified by this, by thanking God for the ministry of others. It is one thing to thank God for what you do. It is another thing to get excited about what God is doing through someone else. When you do, you bring glory and honor to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. The saints will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You glorify God when you thank him for others that are, other servants that are serving. There's others, but I felt like I needed to include this one. By dying is a faithful disciple. Listen to this. There are many people who want to die as a faithful disciple, but without having to live a faithful life. That's heathenism has crept into the church. Oh, I want to die as a faithful disciple, but I don't want to live a faithful life. They want to live, or I'm sorry, they want to die a godly death, but they don't want to have to live a godly life. John chapter 21, verse 19. Jesus was talking to Peter, the fact that he would die a martyr's death. In the course of that conversation, however, Christ talks to all of us about the fact that even in our death, we can bring glory to God. It reads, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. See, even in, even in death, you, you, you have been to funerals or uh, individuals that have gone home to be with the Lord, and they were a faithful servant. This, this funeral happened a long time ago, so you, I don't think any of you were ever here for that. Uh, that I was uh, helped in, and I was dealing with the family, and uh, usually we give a time and opportunity for family or friends to say a few words of, you know, what this 
man, what this woman meant to us, and the blessing that they were. And I asked them if they wanted to do that, and they said, oh yes, we want to do that. You know, she was such a great servant and, and uh, really loved the Lord and stuff. And, and there was probably, uh, it wasn't a big funeral, but I would say at least 30 people to maybe 50 people there. And I remember uh, introducing that, and then I sat down, and people could come up and speak. It was the most uncomfortable 10 minutes of my life. Nobody got up to speak. Not even a family, not even her own daughter. I'm, not, I'm sure she may have had a testimony, but nobody was telling her their memories. Listen, even dying as a faithful servant can bring glory to God. And if that's true, people will know. You won't have to beg people to say something. They will want to say something. And some of you have been in the funerals that we've had where, where that has happened. I remember one funeral, we almost had to cut it off because so many people were coming forward and testifying of this individual's faith. And what a joy and encouragement they had been in their life. They thought of their memories. Anyway, that was the time out. Now I get to get back in the game, okay? But this is how you and I can bring, ought to be bringing glory to God. Don't let heathenism influence you to action to glorify God. All right, back to the... So by his reckless choices of indifference, he refused to glorify God. The second one we see there in verse 21, ingratitude, failure to be thankful, neither giving, neither giving thanks. One of the distinct characteristics that distinguishes us, that ought to distinguish us, from non-believers is our ability to say thank you to God and mean it. Although God's source is the source of everything man possesses, life, air, rain, sun, water, other natural blessings that, fill, that fall on the just and the unjust alike, the natural man fails to thank him. The natural man fails to thank him. Thank you for this day probably may be the most overworked work phrase in our daily prayers. But don't let that stop you from thanking him for the day. Next time, maybe be a little more specific. Thank you for this day, Lord. What a great day to have so much high humidity. I don't really mean it, Lord. But thank you for living in Florida where we have so much sunshine. The brightness of it. Thank you. The believer is to thank God in all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. In everything, in everything give thanks. There's no limit to it. Even when those things are troubling, Philippians 4, verse 8. Be anxious for, 4, verse 6, I'm sorry. Be anxious for nothing. In other words, when you're filled with anxiety and things just don't seem to be going right, be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. A word of thanks is always appropriate for those of us who know that our daily bread comes not from the grocery store, but ultimately from God himself. They were reckless choices of indifference, of ingratitude. The third one you see here in verse 21, imagination. They are a legend in their own mind. They were trying to rewrite history. When high school, they played sports. 
But in the legend of old mind, as they rewrite history, they were the star. The truth of the matter was they couldn't even carry the water. They were that so far down on the end of the bench. But they become a legend in their own mind. Became vain, became empty in their own reasoning. Became futile. That empty drum that makes the most noise. It has no content. Form without substance. Grand schemer, great plans, foolish speculations. John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It's a passionate call for the gener- this generation to make their lives count for now and on into eternity. Don't waste your life. Don't get so caught up in the grand scheme of things. You become a legend in your own mind. You lose touch with reality. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 and 20 gives this illustration. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, this is the parable of the, of the rich fool, the ground of, the, of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? I have, since I have no room to store my crops. So he, so he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns, and I'll build greater And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, to my imagination, to my thoughts, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah. But God said to him, fool, vain, empty, you're making a lot of noise. This night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be which you have provided? We get caught up in our own imaginations, our own grand schemes. We lose touch with reality, become a legend in our own mind. They're reckless choices, indifference, ingratitude, imaginations. And the last one there in verse 21 is ignorance. And then, I'm sorry, and they're foolish heart was darkened. And notice the digression. Indifference, refused to glorify God, led to ingratitude, a failure to thank God, to imaginations, they lost touch with reality, to ignorance, just listen to my heart. Talk about foolish. The heart is used in Scripture. Joel stole in Fan the Flame, put up by Moody Press, wrote, the heart is used in scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscience and decisive spiritual activity. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole, his feelings, his desires, his thoughts, his understanding, his will, and the center of the person, the place which God turns the heart. But God describes the heart in Jeremiah chapter 17. says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Listen. I shouldn't say that. Don't listen to your heart. It's deceitfully wicked. Or you've heard this statement, you know, how do I make a decision here? Well, how does that make you feel? Or, 
Just listen to your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. William Hendrickson, in his New Testament commentary, Romans volume 1, put it this way. That darkness denotes mental apathy, emotional despair, spiritual depravity. When men continue to that downward spiral of rejecting the truth, he's trapped in a darkened maze of his own making. Wandering there thinking is a, is, he is happy and whole while the cancer of sin is destroying him from within. Then when it's too late, Horror beyond words, eternal damnation in hell. Because he listened to his heart. That's what the heathen do. When we allow that to creep into our own thinking, our own practice as a believer. All right, let's go on to verse 22. That's verse 21. And it took me much longer than I thought. And the next ones don't take quite as long, but they're just as important. Verse 22. By his foolish reasoning. Talked about by his reckless choices. Now we look at by his foolish reasoning. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing has to do with proclaim proclaim one's belief, (laughs) even if it's false. I believe that I can jump 10 feet. I profess that to you that you may know that I can jump 10 feet. That's 120 inches. but I'm a fool because that's ridiculous. I can barely jump one inch. To profess, to proclaim something that you believe, even if it's false. A fool, the root word is moros, which, of course, we get our word moron, which means to be dull, sluggish, undiscerning. Talk about intellectual challenge. But in the biblical sense, he's talking about a spiritual, spiritually challenged. A designation of moral and spiritual failure. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They became spiritually bankrupt. Notice the fool's declaration in Psalm 14.1, also in Psalm chapter 53. He says, the fool, that empty drum has set in his heart, There is no God. He professes, even though it may be false, there is no God. They are corrupted and do abominable works. There is no one that does good. There is no God. Their declaration, their deception. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Paul writes, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where are the disputers of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message or the foolishness of preaching to save save those who believe. And then back in verse 1 and 2, you see Paul came. He said, I didn't come and... Fancy speech, I didn't come in fancy clothes, I didn't come here to tickle your ears. He said, I just came with a simple message, Christ and him crucified. And that astounds the fool. 
It's way too simple. And it is. Christ and him crucified. Their dilemma, they're conflicted. They're they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They're caught between profession and truth. And there only could be one result, as we'll see in verse 23. But I came across this illustration of dilemma. Do you understand the dilemma that the fool is in? He may not admit it to you. He may proclaim his, what he believes, even though it's false. He's in a dilemma. Two hunters came across a bear so big that they dropped their rifles and they ran. One man climbed a tree while the other hid in a nearby cave. The bear was in no hurry to eat, so he sat down between the tree and the cave to reflect on his good fortune. Suddenly, and for no apparent reason, the hunter in the cave came rushing out, almost ran into the waiting bear, hesitated, and then dashed back in again. The same thing happened a second time. When he emerged for the third time, his companion in the tree frantically called out, Woody, are you crazy? Stay in the cave till he leaves. Can't, panted Woody. There's another bear in there. (laughs) Make sure you're still paying attention. But that is the dilemma that the heathen are confronted with. And here you have a divine appointment of this co-worker, this individual that you work with or know who is unsaved. And this paradox, this conflict is going on in their own heart and their own mind. And God may have sent you for the glory of God to plant a seed of a witness. To share the gospel. Maybe you're the first one. Maybe you're the tenth one. Someone else may have planted the seed and you're just watering it. But they're, they're in a paradox. They're in a dilemma. Through their foolish reasoning. The craziness, indeed, of it all. By their perversion of worship. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. And they change the glory, that is honor, respect, admiration, worship, of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible men. And by the way, if that doesn't satisfy, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creepy things. Man fulfills Satan's purpose, just as when he told Eve, you shall be as God. And God, and Satan's plan has not change. He wants to dethrone God and dominate man. And one of the ways that he can dominate man is let man become his own God. Instead of men being made in the God's image, man made God in his own image. And then he descended so low that he began to worship birds, beasts, and bugs. Warren Worsby summarized this verse this way. Having held down God's truth, refusing to acknowledge God's glory, men or man was left without a God. And man is so created that he must worship something. This fact about man explains his propensity to idolatry. 
I don't know if you remember this illustration. I'd used it. It was a long time ago now. But in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, of course, was the weeping prophet. He was just, if there was, if there was ever a prophet that may have started tearing his hair out of frustration, of, of, he was telling the people, repent, turn back to God. If you don't repent, he's going to destroy you. If you want your life saved, even though you may not like it, if you want your life saved, you need to surrender. You need to give up. And they refused to repent. In fact, they called him, or, well, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but they called him Old Morgan Misabub, which simply meant this, old bad news. The children would mock him. Adults would use it to, by hand his back and to his face, hey, here comes old bad news. What's the bad news, Jeremiah? What's the destruction about today? And one of the things he confronted them was their idolatry. He said, yeah, we've destroyed the high places. In other words, the places you go outside of the city to set up your idol worship. But even the mothers, the women in their homes are making bread, making a pancake in the shape of their idol. They were so consumed with their idolatry that even in their cooking, they were translating that into making it in the shape of that which they worshipped. Consumed with it. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. What is it that you absolutely refuse to do without? That has become your God. That which your heart clings to. We, we as believers, need to be wary that that heathen thinking, that heathen planning, that pagan way of life does not creep into our thinking and our practicing or our faith. We're in this together. We're seeking to glorify his name together, to honor him, to praise him, to worship him, to admire him. What's stopping you from doing that? To glorify God. No excuse. Part one, no excuse. Part two, no excuse. The condemnation of man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, as we come to you this morning for, again, your word and your truth. We thank you for the privilege of not only worshiping you and admiring you and honoring you, respecting you here, but Lord, I pray that we will translate that to out there. That we will not just be a Sunday morning Christian, but we will be 24-7 gospel and life together to your glory, to your praise. If you're here this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed and you say, Pastor Ken, I honestly don't know Christ as my Savior, but I'd love to have someone show me from Scriptures how I can be saved. Is there anyone like that? Again, I will not embarrass you. I would not call you out. I would just quietly talk to you after the service. Is there anyone like that? Secondly is this then. Say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me that I will glorify God in my body, in my mind, in my worship. Is there anyone like that? Any others? Thank you, Father, for your continued working in our, our midst. You know 
our hearts. You know our hearts' desires and our hearts' needs. You know whether the people raised their hands or didn't raise their hands, that they need to confront themselves in the light of your scripture. Indeed, Father, I pray as individuals, as believers, as a church together, then indeed we will glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all stand as Pastor Phil leads us in our closing hymn. Let's stand.